Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello listeners, you're listening to Movie Oubliette, episode 58. It's the Transcontinental Film Review Podcast with me, Dan, treating a mask like a pair of underwear in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, treating some underwear as a mask in Cambridge, UK. (laughs) (laughs) In this podcast, we discuss forgotten genre films, sci-fi, fantasy and horror, because why not wield a weapon with five blades and no handle? That's not dangerous at all. (laughs) Hello, Dan. Hello. (laughs) And I do want to clarify, I'm not wearing my mask on my groin. Uh, I'm treating it like underwear, as in if I leave the house, I have to make sure I'm wearing underwear and a mask. Oh, right. Okay. (laughs) The rules to live by. Yes. (laughs) That's a relief. How are you, Conrad? Oh, I'm pretty good so far, yes. Staying safe and, uh, yeah, managing to cope still and still sane. How about yourself? Yeah, well, my state has gone into stage four lockdown. Oh. So mandatory masks, uh, curfews, all that, it's great. Oh. But in lockdown, we still get to enjoy all of your mailbag listeners. Yes, and I don't have to put it in quarantine and wipe it down with an antiseptic cloth beforehand, so that's yes. good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we've had feedback on Explorers from Darth Sean, who said, this is one I actually thought I imagined as a kid, <laughs> as for many years, <laughs> I couldn't remember much about it. And then I discovered it on Netflix a few years ago and realised it wasn't a dream. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. I, I've had that same experience with uh, the movie The Peanut Butter Solution. I, oh. I just It was just like a very fragmented memory of my childhood. But then I discovered it, in fact, was a real movie. Yeah, and isn't it particularly weird, that movie? It's strange. It is very strange. I do remember one of our potential guests suggested it as an oubliette movie, so Mm. we may watch it at some point. Possibly. Also on Explorers, Corey Newman, Oh wow, this was one of my favourites as a kid, and I somehow totally forgot it existed. (laughs) This is a common theme. It was cool to watch it again after all these years and then get to listen to your episode right afterwards. Thanks for a fun blast from the past. Great episode. So thank you, Corey. Thanks, Corey. (laughs) So we really are doing the thing we hope to do with Movie Oubliette, which was remind people of movies they've forgotten. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Movies they've suppressed (laughs) from their traumatic childhoods. Yes. I also asked, what's your favourite ensemble cast of kids in an 80s movie, citing Mm -hmm. Explorers as being the perfect example with Ethan Hawke and River Phoenix? And Mm -hmm. Beach Boy Nick said, mine would be Stand By Me, River Phoenix, Uh... Corey Feldman, Will Wheaton and Jerry O'Connell 
are perfectly cast and hold the film together. And there's a young Kiefer Sutherland stealing his scenes too. Mm. That is a good movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I was always so surprised when I found out it was based on a Stephen King book. Mm. Yeah, it's one of his more heartfelt pieces, like Shawshank Redemption. It's really good. Mm. Yes. Really good. In answer to the same question, Fosslight said, does the Lord of the Flies film adaptation count? It came out in 1990, so surely it was filmed in 1989? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> I haven't actually seen the film. Have you not? I think I have. And it stars Balthazar Getty. I don't know whatever happened to Balthazar Getty. Mm, yeah, I wonder. And on The City of Lost Children, we heard from Paranoid Alandroid, who said... Great episode. As a piece of trivia, the visual effects supervisor was Pitoff, who later directed VidoCQ, I don't know how to pronounce that, and Catwoman. Oh my. <laughs> oh, okay. Catwoman is a terrible film, but it's kind of one of my guilty pleasures. It's, it's so really? bad as good. It's, oh. it's just astonishing that film <laughs> the direction of that film <laughs> astonishing <laughs> i've only ever seen you know adam uh, who does your movie sucks oh yes yeah he did a really great video on youtube adam and pals where they're watching catwoman and taking the piss out of it and it's very very funny <laughs> yes yes love that guy so Paranoid Alandroid goes on to say, From what I remember, Mark Caro did not co-direct Alien 4 because he didn't want to fly. He only did character design, and he's done that for other French directors. Uh -huh. From there, they went their separate ways. Caro did a movie called Dante Zero One, which is somewhat similar to Alien 3. He has a collection of short films. Genet has done a couple of solo movies, but is also known for commercials he's done. Both have done music videos for French artists. Genet and Caro did the music video for Jean-Michel Jarzouluk, among mm, others. Okay. I remember that. Okay. <laughs> thanks for the info. Yeah, thanks, Paranoid Alandroid. And finally, Kirk Olmsted got in touch just to say... Genea Caro sont magnifique. <laughs> Probably pronouncing mm. all of that totally wrong. <laughs> but yes, very true. That is true. But no mailbag from Serge Bodnarchuk from Cold Crash Pictures today because we thought we'd just get him on the show instead. So very excited to welcome back a very talented writer, director, friend of the pod, and one of the best and most insightful vloggers on cinema and its social context you're likely to fall down a YouTube rabbit hole with. He's our first guest and our first guest to return a third time. Hello, Serge of Cold Crash Pictures. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me back. This is literally the highlight of my year now. Oh. <laughs> and ours too. It's always great to have you back. Yes. I love how every time I tweet a review of a film that you guys are talking about, it's like you guys plug me more often than I can plug you. <laughs> but you are so reliable though. Yeah. And you've done some amazing video essays recently. Thank I particularly you. like the very first episode of Saurian Cinema. Ah, uh, yes. It's um, a video about exploring gender expression and and interpretations of gender within Jurassic Park, yeah. combining my most highbrow interest with my most lowbrow interest. <laughs> <laughs> well, it works like a charm. So how's lockdown been for you? You're in Chicago, is that right? I am, yeah. And Illinois is one of the luckier states. We don't have as many cases as some other states. And we've got a mayor who is very vigilant 
her presence on social media is kind of that of a strict mother, right. uh, <laughs> where people are saying she's going to put us back in lockdown if we can't keep the cases down. <laughs> I will say that I'm healthy and I'm in a very privileged and lucky position to be that way. Mm. Yes, same here. So touching wood and hoping for the best. Yeah. So I guess we ought to put you in harm's way and, <laughs> and send you into the oubliette to find a movie for us. I would be thrilled to do so. All right. All right. I'll go down. Okay. Here we go. Oh, man. It's very humid in here, and there's a bunch of bright light emanating from the floor. It looks like it should be hot with all this steam, but it's oddly not hot in the slightest. Oh, wow. I think you can just stick your hand in there, and that'll be fine. Don't worry, Serge. It's definitely not lava. Yeah, yeah. I see. It looks like the movie's inside this river of KY jelly. (laughs) All right, all right. I'm coming back out. I come to fight a king, and I find a boy instead. Okay. Oh, hold on. It's it's like caked in this, like, it looks like rock, but it feels like I'm peeling it off, and it's like brownie batter. (laughs) That's strange. (laughs) So what do you have for us? I have retrieved from the oubliette Krull, which is a 1983 fantasy sci-fi action film directed by Peter Yates, written by Stanford Sherman, starring Ken Marshall, Lizette Anthony, Freddie Jones, Alan Armstrong, Bernard Breslau, David Batley, and some of the earliest on-screen appearances of Liam Neeson and Robbie Coltrane. It's pretty impressive. (laughs) What happens in this movie? Uh, Okay, so if I were writing the copy for this movie, it would go something like this. On a distant planet that bears a striking resemblance to medieval Earth, an evil alien warlord by the name of the Beast kidnaps Princess Lyssa on the day of her wedding with plans to make her his queen. It's then up to Lyssa's beloved fiancé, Colwyn, to bring together a ragtag team of escaped convicts, wizards who are trying their best, and one laconic cyclops to uncover the location of the heavily guarded, teleporting black fortress in order to rescue Queen Lyssa and defeat the beast once and for all. Mm. Something like that. This sounds like a perfectly sensible way to spend two hours. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to explore it. Mm. Right after the break. And we're back with our good friend, Serge. Hi. In the flesh, well, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> we are talking Krull. Serge, you chose this fantastic film. Would you like to start it off with your initial thoughts? So my history of this film is it was one of those movies that every time it came on TV when I was a kid, I would sit down and watch it. But then there was this big giant gap in my life where I probably hadn't seen it in maybe as much as two decades. Wow. <laughs> so I wasn't really sure, is it going to stand up? Yes. It has a reputation for being this cheesy knockoff of Star Wars. Yes. But then I watched it. So my first impression, which is kind of judgment-free, I would not say its closest comparison is Star Wars. I would say the closest comparison is Dune. Ah, oh, um, interesting. Because... It takes place in this world which is devoid of computers because even though Dune takes place in the future, one of the things is they've, I believe they've actually outlawed computers in that universe. Yeah. And in Krull, it takes place on some alien planet with two suns, but they are, of course, it resembles like medieval Earth, like a Dungeons and Dragons setting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the setup is, of course, that there are these two kingdoms who have been at war forever, and then there's going to be a new contract, a new arrangement that's going to bring peace to this planet. Yes. But then, of course, there's this new external force that screws up that plan. 
And all of that sounds more like Dune to me than Star Wars. Right. That's a very good observation, and it shares two cast members as well with Freddie Jones and Francesca Annes. It does. <laughs> I actually found uh, more similarities, and I've read this as well, um, with this movie and Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah, I see that. Because the eye and this big mythical beast-like entity that's the bad guy. The slayers resemble the Ringwraiths as well, mm-hmm. kind of similar. Mm. But, yeah, when I watched it, Star Wars vibes the whole way through. Mm-hmm. But I think it was mainly the visuals, like the fact that they were shooting blue lasers and every time a sword would strike one of their weird staffs, there was, like, red sparks coming off it, similar to how <laughs> lightsabers react together. So, yeah. yeah, I think visually and also sonically with the score, yeah. Star Wars for me. Very much so. And all of this is a dramatic course correction for the production. It was initially started as a pure balls-to-the-wall fantasy uh-huh. adventure, and then Dragon Slayer came out, oh, which, right. of course, <laughs> we've covered in a previous episode <laughs> yeah. and thrown back into the oubliette in disgust, as did most audiences back in 1981 when it debuted, at which point Columbia got cold feet and said, quick, let's make it more like Star Wars. So the original script's title was The Dragons of Krull, even though... There's no dragons. Yeah, Yeah, so all of a sudden it was Krull (laughs) and there are lasers and the force that's invading is coming from another planet and they're on another planet themselves. And the castles all of a sudden have these strange sort of Art Deco influences and the knights are wearing shiny plastic and all of a sudden it sort of becomes this very, very strange hybrid that I think still remains quite interesting to this day. I mean, it's something I haven't seen before, a fantasy with sci-fi elements. Mm. I can't really recall any movie like that. Not like this. This is spotting the fact that Star Wars is pretty much an Arthurian legend in a different setting and then just sort of bringing it halfway back. Yeah, I definitely didn't mean to suggest that the filmmakers had not seen Star Wars because they definitely (laughs) did. I actually have written down in my notes, Ergo and Titch equals C-3PO and R2-D2. Right. (laughs) Like, they definitely were familiar with the brand when this entered production. Yeah, Yeah. and the old wizard provides the young hero with a mythical weapon and then promptly dies when he's not really useful anymore. Uh, Ah, yeah, yeah. Also, you know, Liam Neeson is in Star Wars and this so that's true yeah there's even a scene when he's used the glaive and it's embedded itself in the beast and he's trying to get it out and he's like concentrating and extending his hand towards it and immediately i just said use the force luke use the force (laughs) (laughs) yeah very much so i love that moment because james horner scores it with the same cue that he scores the moment early on in the film when our hero colwyn witnesses the death of his father the kidnapping of his bride and pretty much the death of everybody else that he knows at his wedding, sort of red wedding yet again. Um, So yeah, James Horner has this wonderful surging string cue that's sort of slowly climbing up in desperation and we get the same cue later in the movie just when this guy's trying to get his toy back, which I thought was kind of cute. (laughs) But as an eight-year-old watching it for the first time, I completely understood I wanted that thing back. Mm. 
if we could talk about the narrative arc of the glaive. Yes. Yes. So the glaive is a star-shaped metal weapon where blades extend out of each prong. So it's basically a giant five-bladed throwing star, mm-hmm. which when Colin is first tasked with defeating the beast and rescuing his bride, this, well, this Obi-Wan Kenobi knockoff is telling him you have to find the glaive first. And so he goes into this mountain and he reaches into this molten lava and he retrieves this weapon. And he is told you can't use it until you need it. Mm -hmm. And so it spends the entire movie strapped to his side (laughs) until he finally reaches the beast and he throws it at the beast and then it stabs the beast and the beast goes down. And then he can't retrieve it because it's like stuck in the beast's ribcage or whatever. Mm-hmm. So he walks up and then when he's about to grab it, of course, the beast is not actually dead. Surprise. And he has to run off. <laughs> but anyway, what I'm getting at with respect to the glaive is that it's one thing I love about this movie is that he's given this mythic weapon. There's so much buildup. He finally uses it to seemingly fail the beast and then it does nothing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and I love that though. Because if it actually worked, then it's just like a magic trick. There's no drama in it's deus ex machina Mm. if it would have worked. By it not being able to kill the beast, they come up with a slightly more emotional ending to the beast. Where, in fact, his bride, Queen Lyssa, or perhaps Princess Lyssa, depending on whether or not the marriage ceremony was completed, she is able to gift him another means of defeating the beast, which was kind of refreshing. They gave the princess something to do. Yes. Which I thought was kind of unique for this genre. It is, yes. Lizette Anthony has said in interviews that she does spend an awful lot of her time gasping and holding up her frock whilst running around corridors, yeah. which is true. <laughs> but she does hold her own in quite a few scenes. I particularly like the first scene where she meets Colwyn. For the first time, I think. Is that right? The movie does not make it clear, and I think this is intentional, Mm. and I kind of like that a lot. (laughs) Well, it could either be that it's a Romeo and Juliet story, and the son and the daughter of the two warring kings have fallen in love behind their father's backs, but I get the sense that it is their first time because she looks at him and she says... I've chosen well. Yeah. I get the feeling that she's kind of stood there sort of deciding whether to swipe left or right and thinking, <laughs> no, that's okay. I can go through with this. <laughs> For the good of the kingdom. For the good of the kingdom. Yeah, she's going to lie back and think of Kroll. But it's, they're sort of meat cute, if that's what it is. Mm. It's quite nice because even though she's young and she's playful, she's hiding from him and she's a bit flippant. She also challenges him and mocks him a little. Mm-hmm. So... I quite like their relationship, although it does seem to escalate very quickly because they have that one scene and presumably the wedding in the evening, which is interrupted and then she's carted off. And then Colwyn is talking for the rest of the movie about she is the love of his life and the thought of her being imprisoned is killing him and he's going to risk everything to get her back. And you think, wow, that escalated fast. (laughs) That's why I really think it's almost so ambiguous as to suggest that the ambiguity is intentional to me. Yeah, could be. I'm not saying you can't make a case for either. I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying you could definitely make a case for both. Mm. And I love when storytellers do stuff like that. (laughs) I would disagree entirely with both of you. I think she's classic damsel in distress. She does nothing (laughs) until the end where instead of her throwing a giant fire ball from her hands, she has to give it to Corwin to do it. And where did that come from as well? Because (laughs) huge emphasis on the glaive the entire film and then, oh, it doesn't work. Here's some flamethrower 
throwing abilities from your hand. I don't know. I thought that was just really unexpected and I couldn't digest it. It just seemed like, what is going on here? What? <laughs> but I do love the fact that the movie doesn't explain everything. Mm. It's like a self-contained, lived-in world and magic is just taken for granted. But um, yeah, it does mean that things just come out of nowhere, like... Flame throwing. Yeah, random flame throwing. <laughs> Lissa turning to Colwyn and saying, you have to fight him away from the centre. How does she know this? Yeah. Why does she know this? <laughs> then she says, it's not the glaive. It's you. Yeah. And he says, no, it's not me, it's us. And you think, well, how? What? Wh- where's the reasoning for this coming from? And is it just that newlywed couples can flame throw beasts? <laughs> mm. Could it be long-standing relationships? You know, could Liam Neeson, who I believe has nine wives, in this movie oh, yeah. could they have all turned up and raised that thing to the ground <laughs> it does make some logical leaps that you have to sort of go along with my only thing about all that because i don't deny any of that i don't disagree with any of it i keep thinking star wars is like the most popularly beloved movie franchise on the planet and it ends with use the force luke and then he beats the day and i'm just anytime i came across something in crawl that i thought was dumb I compared it to Star Wars and thought if Star Wars did it worse, (laughs) not even worse, but less ambitious with less self-awareness. I don't know if a movie is going to be as cheesy as Crawl, the least (laughs) I could hope is that it is at least as self-aware of its cheesiness as Crawl. (laughs) I would like to know, Serge, your sort of opinion on... On the fact it's a bit of a sausage party oh, throughout yeah. <laughs> the whole film. I mean, there are like, what, two female characters? Yeah. And they're very sidelined. I mean, I actually really loved the Widow of the Web. Oh, yeah. She's great. I mean, that scene, if it was a little bit more fast-paced edited, Mm. would have been, like, my favourite scene of the film. And I love the sort of mythology around it. But, yeah, for the most part, just lots of men. Yeah. (laughs) And and it just grew bigger and bigger. More men. Yeah. The (laughs) party went along. So I believe that there are four women in the entire film. Right. There's Queen Lyssa, who falls into the damsel in distress trope. Mm -hmm. There's the Widow of the Web, who is the hell hath no fury like the wrath of a woman scorned trope. Mm -hmm. There's... The wife number one of nine of Liam Neeson, who's got like two lines. Oh, yes, that's right. And then finally, there is the changeling woman who tries to seduce Colwyn and then it doesn't work. And so the beast like kills her with his mind. Yeah. So would I put this movie in the good feminist representation section of Blockbuster? Mm. Not really. (laughs) (laughs) And to return briefly to the Widow of the Web, Yanir is like, I can go to the Widow of the Web and I think I can get her to tell me where the Black Fortress is. And they're like, are you mad? She kills everyone. And he's like, no, 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 we go way back. (laughs) And And so he goes to her and we find out that they had a kid and then he abandoned her 
And then she says, my rage needed a victim. And so we find out she murdered their child. And she's just been like stewing this whole time. <laughs> I actually think she's an interesting character, but when you've got so little female representation in your film, and that's more than a quarter of it, I raised my eyebrows a little. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure. If you break it down, basically she and Inia had a really hot relationship, but he left her in order to pursue ambition as a wizard or whatever. Mm -hmm. And unbeknownst to him, she has his child and she kills it because he's not around anymore. So essentially, you've got an abandoned single mother whose punishment for severe postnatal depression is being shoved in the middle of a spider's web for all eternity with nothing but a mirror and an hourglass for entertainment. Yeah. Seems harsh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So is this right? The hourglass, every time she turns it, she gets older? Is that what happens? I don't know. It seemed to be only there to give Inia some time to escape the spider. Yeah. It's has like one purpose and it's been sat there the whole time just for that and she hasn't used it until that i don't know <laughs> yeah because he he then grabs the sand and then he he dies <laughs> uh so I, I was a bit confused about that whole situation yeah the whole thing makes very little sense yeah i've uh, <laughs> i've watched the movie twice in the last week and if you commanded me to write down the rules governing the red sand i would not be able to yeah <laughs> i mean i would also have to say that scene is so badly edited mm. especially when he's going towards her and also escaping yeah it's just some of the most boring action i have mm. ever seen <laughs> in my entire life like he is just crawling along that web it's just like come on yeah. there's danger <laughs> have a bit more <laughs> haste there's even a moment when he's climbing across this giant spider web to get to the center of relative safety where he sees something through the web and so he stops climbing and he brushes the spider web away and it reveals a skeleton a rotting skeleton yeah and it's treated as this big moment there's like this big stinger in the Sting, score yeah music and yeah. i'm just sitting there and i'm like you knew that everybody who comes here dies. Yeah. <laughs> Get a move on. <laughs> what did you expect? Yeah. Also, you could kind of tell it was a skull through the web yeah. anyway. So <laughs> the reveal wasn't that shocking. <laughs> yeah. No, I think a better judged version of that would be him just putting his hand through the next bit of web and finding a skull, which then shocked him. Yeah. But yeah, it's mm -hmm. edited for the least impact possible, which yeah. is quite impressive. Yeah. In terms of the representation of women in this film, it's disappointing that they went with the oldest and most well-worn, or I should say worn out, archetypes for women to be in movies. Mm. They might have been a little self-aware about their implementation, but they're really not breaking any new ground there. No, yeah. not in comparison with Dragon Slayer, where you have a woman dressed as a man instigating the whole story. Mm -hmm. Although, sadly, I felt as though as soon as she took the trousers off, she lost all impetus for the rest of the movie, which was a shame. Yeah. Or even Return of the Jedi, which came out the same year as Crawl. I mean, at least Leia got to strangle Jabba. Yeah. In a bikini, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I've heard um, some father came to Carrie Fisher and was like, what am I supposed to tell my daughter with you dressed like that in the movie? And she said, tell your daughter that I strangled Jabba because he put me in that outfit. <laughs> mm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I would like to talk about the cast of this film. I didn't know any of them. 
I'm assuming they're all very famous British actors, <laughs> Conrad. Uh, do you know any of them? Well, they're popular on television, many of them. Lizette Anthony and Alan Armstrong. Todd Carty, who's the youngest of the robbers, he had a long-running series called Grange Hill as a child. And as an adult, he was in one of the main soap operas, EastEnders, for a very, very long time. So he's a well-known figure. Robbie Coltrane, of course, became Hagrid, so everybody knows who he is. I did not even recognise him. Yeah, me neither. Because he looks so ordinary. Yeah. <laughs> like when I was watching it, I just thought he just looks like the plumber. Yeah. And he has such a modern haircut as well. It's got like a high fade crew cut yeah. with a very normal looking mustache. I was shocked when I looked at the cast. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And of course, you've got Liam Neeson there, which is pretty amazing. <laughs> and he also looks very ordinary as well. I was surprised. Yeah, he does. Although he's got some rat tails going on there. Which yeah, <laughs> pretty classy. Ken Marshall obviously is the token American, the American <laughs> hero. So you have all these stuffy English people who are only good for sort of dispensing advice and dying, mm. but it takes an American to actually get the job done. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's never, again, never explained how he's the only person here with an American accent. <laughs> Doesn't even try a British one. Good on him because that often goes terribly, terribly wrong. Yes. Um, Kevin Costner. Oh, <laughs> I know in similar roles too because this is quite a swashbuckling role for him. I actually like Ken Marshall in this role. Mm. I thought he did high energy swashbuckling figure and even though he's in his 30s already, he looks fairly youthful he and does. they even have him cry when his father dies at the beginning and he seems sort of petulant and, oh. and stupid and has to be knocked into shape. I thought it was actually quite interesting for a hero and a bit of a change of pace to be honest. Yeah, yeah the scene where he's crying at the loss of his father i thought there was a great exchange yanir the so-so wizard finds him crying on the steps gives him a disapproving look and so colwyn is like you haven't lost a bride and a father in the same day and yanir goes nor have i become king on that day <laughs> anyway this is pretty good i mean ken marshall i haven't seen an awful lot of him since i think he was on was he on deep space nine for a while he was yeah i did read somewhere that lissa was Dubbed over? Yes. Yeah. Is that right? Yes, pretty shocking. So she was handpicked for this movie, having never been in anything before. And then all of a sudden they got cold feet about her voice and thought that she needed to be, I don't know, more Carrie Fisher-like, I guess, mm-hmm. more of a deeper resonance to her voice. So she's dubbed with Lindsay Krauss right. doing sort of a mid-Atlantic, mm. mostly British accent. But Lindsay Krauss being 15 years older than Lizette Anthony, it's quite striking for everybody who knows what she sounds like because she's... Her tone is much higher than that. Right, yeah. She talks about it on the commentary. She points out that Frank Price, who was the head of Columbia at the time, made this decision and did this to her. And then a few years later, she actually married his son. Oh, oh wow. Okay. <laughs> and she oh. sent him a note to say that she was going to ruin him in order to get revenge for Kral. <laughs> <laughs> when you said that Lizette Anthony was overdubbed by somebody 15 years her senior, my brain went, oh, like Ken Marshall's age? Yes. <laughs> Uh, In terms of set design, 
Very ambitious. Yeah. Apparently 23 sets were constructed for this film. Wow. And that scene in the quicksand was a huge constructed set. Yeah, I read that the swamp set was constructed on the Bond stage, which is like the biggest, world famous for being one of the biggest stages. Yeah, I'm sure it's been surpassed since then. It was built in the 70s for The Spy Who Loved Me, for the submarine pen at the end of The Spy Who Loved Me. Therefore, because it's able to be a water tank, it's been used for a variety of things like this ever since so it was the setting for legend as well where they built their indoor forest oh. with miniature waterfall and lake yeah. yeah so it's it's a huge stage because obviously they were originally planning to do lots of location shooting and they still spent some time in Cortina and Lanzarote for some external shots including lengthy lengthy montages of rock climbing yeah boy does that go on (laughs) for a long time it's one of those it's one of those shots that is just completely static with just this amazing score and you're just watching this character slowly climb a mountain yeah yay (laughs) but yeah when they decided that they were going to set it on an alien planet they thought well we better shoot it indoors in order to create this other world so yeah they took over Pinewood and it's some of the most elaborate sets not all of them are convincing Mm. I mean the swamp I don't think is terribly convincing with its cork floating on water as quicksand it did look like sawdust yeah it did yeah and but i mean it is impressive when the establishing shot of them walking from the other side of the stage and you can barely see them they're so far away yeah yeah and the forest with the enormous trees elm trees that are 50 times the size that they should be oh yeah all lit with this sort of magic hour lighting by the cinematographer Peter Suchitsky. Mm-hmm. That one's pretty convincing. That one's amazing when they're riding horses through it. I was really impressed, but also confused by some of the interior castle shots because the exterior was a oh, classic castle, what looked like a real castle, and then interior suddenly modern architecture mm-hmm. and what almost looked like Geiger esque alien looking design with inside the black fortress oh yeah yeah it made me think of uh being inside the inner ear canal or something (laughs) yeah sure (laughs) yeah it was very organic and weird Mm -hmm. i do like all of the interiors of the black fortress i think that's some of the most imaginative stuff in the movie visually yeah i agree but it's one of those things where anything is possible and the walls can move or you could fall through a wall and end up in a room full of spikes. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Oh, the spike room. Room full of spikes emerging from the walls, which was convincingly done in something like Indiana Jones, but in this... It's clearly just a bunch of interns on the other side of some drywall <laughs> yeah. shoving, these, shoving these styrofoam blades into these three actors. Yeah, and I always love it when the actors have to position themselves closer to the spikes because they realize they're missing by a mile. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's always good. So I think Todd Carty goes, oh, no, that one's missed me. Let me just rest my chin on it. That looks dangerous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Black Fortress itself, I really enjoyed. And mm. the fact that it came from outer space and it was just this big monolithic structure and even how it explodes upwards. Oh, yeah. That was one of my favorite (laughs) effects. They defeat the beast and they're running out into a field and the pieces of the Black Fortress are breaking off and they're falling upwards into space, which is just like the simplest, like you know exactly how they did it. Yeah. 
Exactly. Mm. Yeah. No, it was creative. It's tidy too. Mm. Oh yeah. <laughs> the invasion's over, and you don't even have to clear up. It's yeah. great. Yeah. There's no, there's no aftermath. It's just they just left in this beautiful green field with nothing to mm. clean up. Colin, yeah. his first act as king is to commission like an environmental impact report, and they're like, "We're good. <laughs> Everything's fine." Yeah. You both mentioned that you watched this movie as kids. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> uh, because there are some very traumatizing scenes in this movie. Yeah. Like a lot of death. And like graphic disturbing deaths. Yeah. yeah. The greatest hits were, um, we just mentioned the spike sequence where the spikes are coming out of the wall. The fact that the spikes are not sharp right. freaked me out so much as a kid. It's like getting killed by a broomstick, which was just terrifying to me. <laughs> right. And then, of course, when the seer changeling dies, he doesn't just like get stabbed and die. He gets stabbed and then his face starts to dissolve but yeah. also swell yeah. and turn black and he lets out this horrible scream as he like gets sucked into the ground. <laughs> yeah. All that stuff did not have a neutral impact on me as a child. No, me neither. <laughs> I would have been scarred for life. Scarred for life. Every time one of the slayers dies, oh, yeah. their head splits open, some weird sluggy, tentacly, bloody creature slithers out and then there's this high-pitched scream. That's traumatizing. Yeah. yeah. All added in post because they decided that the original deaths weren't creepy enough. Wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, there's some pretty scary stuff. And the beast is quite terrifying, I think, the design of him anyway. Yeah. Although you don't see him an awful lot, which I think helps. Mm. What was the reasoning behind having him out of focus. Well, like you never saw him in focus. <laughs> Supposedly in the script, it's because he doesn't quite inhabit this dimension. Practically, I think it's because if you focus the camera too much, he doesn't look very good. <laughs> yeah. I thought the lead up to the beast was great. And the fact that you just saw like the eye and it had this sort of you know, in movies with big monsters, like when you see parts of it, it's almost more scary than seeing the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, similar with this movie. When you saw the whole thing, it was like, oh, it's a guy in a rubber suit mm. that's green screened onto the background. I don't know. I wasn't hugely impressed by the beast, to be honest. No. But I like the Slayers. I like the design of the Slayers a lot. Yeah, I really like them too. Well, it's a shame that I think those costumes are so restrictive. I don't think they could see anything in them. Yeah, I read similar things. Yeah, so Ken Marshall trained for months to be Robin Hood and then gets to the set and he's faced with an adversary that can barely move. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's definitely scenes where Colwyn is fighting the Slayers where he's clearly just aiming for their spears right. when he's swinging his sword. You end up with to things that are really quite pathetic like there's a slayer that's just sort of gingerly poking Colwyn's father with a sword mm. yeah and, and so many times <laughs> where someone would die and you wouldn't even see a sword penetrate a body yeah it was that definitely <laughs> happened like I do think they padded out a lot of the action scenes with just lasers and red sparks yeah. because that's all you could see <laughs> there's even a shot in the fire swamp or not the fire swamp sorry a different movie uh, in the regular swamp where uh, they fight off all the slayers and there's one slayer left and they all surround the slayer mm. and you don't even see them take out the last slayer they cut to ergo the magnificent walking up to the cyclops rel to thank him for saving his life and yeah. you can see 
in the distant background, like there's enough smoke and fog and haze effects that you can't really see the characters, but you can see the red sparks going where you know that they're killing that Slayer. Yeah, <laughs> but sure. it's like not even really on camera. Mm. Yeah. They're just like, you know what killing a Slayer looks like at that point. Yeah. <laughs> It's a pretty exciting scene. I think I like it. James Horner does a lot to make that scene exciting. That oh, whole yeah. cue when they start rising out of the water. Yes. And one of my favorites. Yeah. It is pretty exciting for a bunch of guys that can't see and can't move very well. Yeah. <laughs> the score is doing a lot of the heavy lifting in those action scenes. Yeah. Yes. 100%. The score is amazing. It's full of dense thematic material. It's so epic in so many scenes. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it does all the heavy lifting in my opinion just astounding score yeah it's young james horner when he was hungry and desperate to impress it's full of themes that seem original whereas later on in life you started to hear the same themes recurring over and over again Mm. right yeah and this is a busy year for him i mean as well as this he did something wicked this way comes brainstorm testament the dresser for peter yates again oh wow gawky park and uncommon valor wow so seven scores in one year busy and he has the energy to turn out something that's 90 minutes of enormous cues for the London Symphony Orchestra and the Ambrosia Choir. And it's big. I mean, it's complicated, mm. so complicated that even the brass section of the London Symph can't cope with it in a couple mm-hmm. of places. There are some flubs. Ooh. Oh, right. If you listen closely, there are some flubs in those many, many heraldic fanfares. But... It's pretty amazing stuff, and there's loads of motifs and themes to enjoy. Yes, it's just gorgeous. Mm. I wanted to quickly go back to Unable to See <laughs> the Cyclops. Yes. could. It was very, very obvious he could not see yeah. a thing, because <laughs> there's one scene where he picks up a bow and arrow, and he's padding the ground <laughs> trying to find it. It's... <laughs> It's really bad. And another scene where he shakes hands with Corwin and he misses his hand first time. (laughs) Come on. Yeah, it it got to the point where there's like two shots in the film where he breaks out into a run and I'm just instantly like, oh, careful. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, poor Bernard Breslau. So he was a veteran of the Carry On movies. I don't know if you've ever seen some of those Uh bawdy British comedies. Very popular in the 60s and 70s. And he was famous for being six feet, seven inches tall. Mm. And he's wearing platform shoes as well. And the Cyclops eye isn't bad. It's a little bit stiff, Mm. the articulation of it. But it's not bad. Mm. I could appreciate that they gave it any articulation at all. Yeah, it's supposed to look around, but it only ever seems to blink as far as I can tell yeah Yeah. I mean it's definitely better than uh, the Ewoks from (laughs) Caravan of Courage that just have unblinking stares (laughs) yes (laughs) whilst they're clutching underage children (laughs) (laughs) now it's time for random trivia so Serge what fascinating piece of trivia has emerged from the swamps for us today (laughs) okay so I was reading that the beast was the first fully self-contained animatronic suit ever constructed for a film oh which surprised me I heard that and my first instinct was like there's no way that's right and I was thinking of the mid 80s and there was kind of this uh, like an explosion in self-contained animatronic suits there was like I was thinking of Harry and the Hendersons Hmm. and uh, Hoggle from Labyrinth. Yeah. But as I was looking up every single one that I could think of, yep, they're all after 1983. Ah. 
It's a shame it doesn't look particularly good. <laughs> well, what surprised me the most is that we never actually see a full shot of the beast. He's always, no. some part of his body is always obscured. Like, I don't know what the beast's feet look like. Mm. No. Show yeah. feet pics, beast. <laughs> <laughs> did you have any trivia, Dan? I did read this, but I, I wanted to work it out for myself as well. But the Cyclops does say, he states that the Firemears, so these horses that, I don't know. Say it. Fire <laughs> comes out of the hooves. I'm not entirely sure what happens. But he does state that they travel a thousand leagues in a day. And I did work it out. And that turns out to be 231 kilometers an hour. Wow. Which is 143 miles per hour. Ah, wow. I don't know. I, if I was going that fast on a horse... <laughs> I wouldn't even have clothes on still. My head, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I don't think I'd be leaping up on its back and cracking a whip and shouting Yahoo, which is what they're doing in this movie. <laughs> and that's our trivia. I'll go ahead and show part of my hand now and say it's not like this film is groundbreaking. No. It's not like no. re it's reinventing any wheels. It's not even applying tropes in any kind of new way. It is just the adventure to rescue a damsel in distress. Mm -hmm. That is exactly what the movie is. But it has enough, I don't know, aesthetic wrinkles? I'm not sure what you'd call it. Just the fact <laughs> that the all-powerful weapon turns out to be useless and the damsel in distress is the one who's like, oh no, I'm the one who can give you the weapon to defeat the bad guy. Mm. The fact that she's not just holed up in the castle the entire movie, but that the beast actually comes to her periodically and he's trying to convince her to marry him, not force her to marry him, but talking about how, you know, Colwyn's just a man and he doesn't really love you. And again, it's not like it's an incredibly tempting offer. Yeah. <laughs> and I think if I were tasked with rewriting this movie, I would try and punch up how tempting the Beast's offer would be. And in fact, I actually read in one of the scripts that she did kind of become more morally ambiguous. Right, mm. okay. And kind of not side with the Beast, but think more about it. And that the filmmakers are just like, no, she has to be pure good. She has to be pure innocence. And that's disappointing to hear that. But I liked the attempts. It, it's one thing to like pick up a trope and throw it in your movie, but they picked it up and they like look at it from a bunch of different angles. Mm. And it's not like they're inventing new ways to present any of these story elements, but they're competent enough and they're just self-aware enough that I, I'm cool with all of that. I'm cool <laughs> with the movie that just wants to be that. Sure, yeah. sure, sure, sure. A lot of that comes from the director, I think, P.T. Yates, who was not known for directing big budget, mm. which this was. I mean, it's the same sort of budget as Return of the Jedi, which came out the same year. But P.T. Yates was not known for this kind of movie at all and did it to get a, an idea of how that kind of thing works. He was mainly known for dramas. I think he was much more interested in trying to put some flesh on the bones of the characters and trying to breathe more life into them than you tended to see in films like this. But yes, it's basically just Princess in Castle Needs Rescuing with a few nice flourishes and lasers and a really cool weapon in the glaive. <laughs> I did not know how the glaive works. 
looks. Mm-hmm. I mean, it looked highly dangerous as well. <laughs> There's no handle. It's just a series of blades <laughs> yeah. that you're supposed to somehow <laughs> negotiate with. And he throws it and then catches it because I thought he's just going to split his whole wrist open <laughs> by catching that thing. But he seems to be unharmed. And when he first tries to get into the chamber where Lissa is and he throws a glaive, it spends an ordinate amount of time <laughs> slicing through it in this very intricate pattern as well. I don't, <laughs> I just did not understand that weapon. But it's fun though. I always liked the glaive. I made a glaive for myself when I was a kid. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, I did have to have one mention from my wife, Anna. When the glaive is first retrieved from what looks like molten lava Mm. and it's just covered in this dirt. She describes it, and I quote, lava poo star, (laughs) um, because that's what it looked like. (laughs) Lava poo encrusted starfish. Yeah, that's not good. (laughs) Yeah. Also, I mean, just a few, what I call kind of really lazy filmmaking, the, the start where it's just a bunch of voiceover between Lissa and I think, is it her father? Yes. Just saying... The plot yeah. and backstory of the film. <laughs> it's like, oh crap, we haven't introduced the film properly. Let's just have all of this voiceover over a bunch of footage that doesn't seem to connect at all. And I found the start quite jarring. Like, is this a film or is this a commentary? <laughs> <laughs> to that end, I did notice one of the very first shots of the film is this slow pan down the face of the Black Fortress. And as I'm watching, I'm seeing these slayers riding out of the Black Fortress, and they're carrying torches, but the smoke is pouring into their torches. And I'm like, oh, so, okay, so this shot is being played in reverse, which I thought was odd. And then, like, ten minutes later, they reuse that shot, except now it's being played forwards. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, final thought here, could there be a Krull 2? Because the prophecy, and there always has to be a prophecy, <laughs> says that a princess will choose a king and together they will defeat the beast and rule over the land, but their son shall rule the universe. Oh, yeah. So, will there be a Krull 2? Maybe. Because Liam Neeson's character's dead, so the most expensive actor to bring back is out of the way. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ken Marshall is 70, Lizette is 56. They're ready uh, to be well. king and queen and to have a 20-something son knocking around, I'm sure. <laughs> mm. I do regularly see in the trades rumours of a remake. Oh, wow. I would be surprised if it got a sequel, mm. just because I think the original is... A little too unknown at this point. Not even unknown, but underviewed. Yeah. They see them doing a remake before they do a sequel. Or one of those half-assed reboots where they sort of bring the old actors back, but not in their original roles. Right. Ken Marshall plays Yanir. Right. Yes. that Anthony plays the Widow of the Web, as Hollywood is wont to do to women who are over 30. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. It's the Moobly Awards. Let's go on a quest across a spider's web to retrieve our favorite highly unsafe multi-bladed parts of the film in a plethora of perilously quicksand sinking categories. Best quote! Ergo the Magnificent with his whole catchphrase, which I can't even remember the entirety of it. (laughs) And he asks the Cyclops what his name is and he goes, Rel. 
And Ergo says, it's all very simple to have a short name when you're 20 feet tall, but small people need large names to give them weight. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And the reply is, your actions give you weight, my friend, which yeah. is really nice. Yeah. yeah. I do like the Cyclops. He's quite a lovely sort of calm, solemn character with a lot of nobility about him. And I think his final sacrifice is quite touching. Yeah. I love the Cyclops lore. Yeah. Yeah. There's one scene with Ergo and Rel where they're talking about what would you wish for and he asks Rel, what, what would you wish for? And I think I read that he says ignorance. Yeah. But I thought, don't know why, I thought he said chicken nuggets. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I was wildly confused. <laughs> were you hungry when you were watching the movie? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> chicken nuggets is bliss. <laughs> So what was your favourite quote, Conrad? Oh, my favourite quote is Ergo yet again. <laughs> He's a very popular guy. I think he is the comic relief in this movie, for sure. And when they first meet him, he's on the run and he explains, there was a difference of opinion concerning a gooseberry pie. The man left it sitting on a windowsill. What did he expect? And Colwyn says, perhaps he expected to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> Best hair or costume? I've gotten my notes written down, Ken Marshall's perfectly quaffed bangs. Oh. Yes. It's an impressive do, isn't it? It seems like the one thing where the production design had absolutely no, it's like, it's like he just, it's, it's 1983 and he walks on set with that beard and that haircut and like, okay, that's good. Let's get him into costuming. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I loved his tights. His yeah. <laughs> extremely tight, stripy tights. Riff tracks refer to them as clown leggings, which I thought was quite a good description. That's very apt. Most 80s moment. Speaking of perfectly placed quaffs, uh, Lissa, <laughs> it's like she came straight from an 80s music video. Like she does not look medieval at all. Like perfect big 80s curly hair, really dark eye makeup, red lipstick. Wow. And that's her natural hair, so it's just an enormous 80s perm. Mm. And yeah, it's a shame because all of the other characters have hairstyles in keeping with the sort of medieval stroke modernist strangeness of this alien world, including the poor little kid Titch who's got this horrific bowl cut. Oh, oh yeah. That he was <laughs> tortured over when he went to school, apparently. Oh. What did you think, Serge? Most 80s thing in this movie? Uh, I also picked somebody's hairstyle. Mm -hmm. It's Liam Neeson's, it's not quite a mullet, but all, <laughs> all the hair on the back of his head is twice the length of the hair on the top of his head. Yeah, it is, yeah. It's very mullet adjacent, I would yeah. say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just shocked at how just not that attractive they made him look. Mm. <laughs> it's Liam Neeson, come on. I, I know. <laughs> Favorite scene. It's when they're infiltrating the Black Fortress. Uh, not the, just the outside of it, the climb up the Black Fortress. Cause it's got like, uh. it's got like three acts in that six minute sequence, five, six, seven mm. minute sequence. And I just, I like that. There's like, all hope is lost at one point and then Rel rides up and he gets them in there, but then he has to sacrifice his life in order to get him in there. And it's, uh, and the score is working over time. And I think that's, just without qualifier, those are like the five or six minutes of the film that I 
I just I get the most jazzed about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, love that sequence. It's a pretty action-packed scene. Mm. It is, yeah. I honestly couldn't figure out how they were going to get in there because they really were pinned down by the Slayers shooting yeah. at them. And yeah, in comes Rel, not expecting that at all. Mm. Yeah, I mean, did he lie to them? Or was he just waiting? Because he knew how he was going to die, right? So he's like, oh, I'm early. I need to wait a day and then I'll go... <laughs> catch up with them. <laughs> the implicit thing here is that he's breaking his own rule. I think he's supposed to die in a valley after he's given his friends some horses or something. That was okay. my impression. Yeah, so he's actually breaking his own fate, which is incredibly painful, but he's dealing yeah. with it anyway or something. Ah, yeah. I see, I see. What a great guy. My favourite scene is the whole sequence where the Beast is trying to tempt Lyssa into marrying him by taking the form of Colwyn, albeit with hideous red lenses Mm. in his eyes, (laughs) and is trying to prove to her that love isn't important, that the thing she should be going for is power. Go for a powerful guy. Because love is fleeting, power is eternal. My eight-year-old self found that very profound, where she turns it on him and says, no, it is you who are betrayed. Power is fleeting, love Mm. is eternal. There's a lesson for us kids. (laughs) (laughs) Most cliched fantasy moment. My most cliched, I guess it's maybe a fantasy film moment or an action film moment, is when every one of these escaped convict red shirts gets killed. He gets cradled in the arms of one of his comrades as he solemnly (laughs) affirms that he has no regrets for dying this way, for being on this mission. Yeah. (laughs) It might only happen twice, but it feels like it happens a lot more than twice. Mm. (laughs) It does. Except in cases where they just die and you don't remember who they were. There is a lot of that. That happens a lot. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs> By the end of it, when they're on the grass, like, hang on. Who's left? Where'd they all go? <laughs> <laughs> you have this sort of like really long shot of them running across a bridge and somebody gets lasered and falls off. Yeah. And everyone stops. <laughs> and I almost feel as though they're wondering who that was. <laughs> <laughs> My cliche, probably a bit obvious, deus ex magical flying animal, where (laughs) a third act problem of location (laughs) is solved dramatically by the sudden appearance of a flying animal. Yeah, yeah. The fire mares do seem terribly convenient and terribly unlikely. I'm not sure how they fly either. No. And to be honest, the image of them literally blazing a trail across a field of crops does make me think they're a terrible hazard as, yeah. as a naturally occurring animal on this planet. I know. You'd think farmers would live in constant fear of a stampede <laughs> of firemen. <laughs> My cliche is that the solution to all our problems was within you the whole time. <laughs> of course, yes. This is one of your bugbears, actually, isn't it? I'm just, oh, come on. But it just happens to be flamethrowing. So I guess a little bit more impressive. Favourite special effect. My favourite effect is the glaive in all of its guises. I like the practical prop itself with the knives that fly out, even though I can't figure out how on earth you'd hold it without Mm. getting permanent injuries. (laughs) To the animated blue screen shots of it flying around. And the way that at the end, Colwyn just sort of gives up. He sort of thinks he's controlling it with his mind and then realises he isn't when it's sort of floating around the beast and waiting for its moment to strike. Mm. And it sort of becomes a character in and of itself. And I think that's quite impressive for a throwing knife 
star thing. So yeah, I really yeah. liked it. I thought it was effective. And the shots where he's catching it, apparently they're all running backwards. That's how yeah. they did that. Mm. But I never spotted. And Lizette Anthony, bless her, on the commentary track, she says that she just could not fathom in her brain. The director tried to walk her through doing some motions backwards, but she just could not figure it out at all. So in the end, she just stands stock still in all the <laughs> scenes where he's catching it and tries not to breathe or blink. Oh, no. <laughs> what was yours? My favorite special effect, it's the stop motion spider. Yes. The, yes. That Blanche White <laughs> spider who guards the Widow of the Web. And it's not just the animation, which I thought was really, really well done, because they had go motion by now, but the uh, that chittering sound that it makes mm. as it traverses the web. <laughs> that was another thing that um, gave me blessed nightmares as a kid. <laughs> but yeah, definitely going to go with the giant spider. It's amazing. It truly is a marvel to witness. And, and the fact that the design of it, it's like translucent, so it just mm. looks really strange. Best sound effect. Sound effect. <laughs> Do we all, we should also just say it at the same time. <laughs> Slay a death rattle, anyone? <laughs> yep, that was mine. <laughs> it must be some sort of dinosaur monster sound effect that's just been run through a vocoder of some kind yeah, i'm right, not sure yeah. what it is but it's really strange and quite characteristic of this movie i, I always mm -hmm, hear it yeah. when i think of this movie right mm. yes 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 most funniest scene so it's a scene that dan already mentioned i think it's interesting that i picked it as a funny scene it's when ergo is asking titch what he would wish for and titch is like one puppy and Ergo is pestering him about that because he's like, just one puppy. And, you know, they're just chewing the fat or whatever. And then he turns to Rel the Cyclops and he says, what would you wish for? And he says, ignorance. And <laughs> what's funny, to, I don't know, it's it's not, maybe it's not even laugh out loud funny, but it's the kind of funny where the juxtaposition of like a puppy versus ignorance of my demise mm. is, um, yeah. it's, this, it's this kind of dramatic comedy that I just love that. Mm -hmm. mm. I think it is supposed to be funny, for sure. Mm. I also thought Rao was funny in a different way, and mm. that is his Cyclops eye always just blinks once in every mm. scene he's in. Just that one <laughs> blink, and I was every time just waiting for it. There it is. And <laughs> it's like they had to, had to milk that tiny movement that they <laughs> constructed, but um, yeah. Just that one blink. It's his signature move. <laughs> yeah. The single blink. <laughs> For me, it had to be Inia's death, oddly enough. And I think mm. it's because he doesn't just stop moving and assume the thousand mile stare. He sort of rolls off of Colwyn's arms, presumably to face plant into the forest floor off screen. Right. <laughs> because there's this massive body impact sound. But meanwhile, everybody that's crowded around him continues to look solemn and sad. Yeah. But to me, it just seems really comical. Did Colwyn <laughs> drop him? What the hell happened there? I thought it was hilarious and so undignified. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that's our Mooblies. Yeah. Okay, we're back. 
for the final verdict. Should Krell be freed from the clutches of the beast and released into the world like a majestic fire mare to be applauded by the masses, or should it be skewered by 20 slowly penetrating spikes <laughs> and propelled into the oubliette to be lost forever? Serge, you're our guest. You picked a movie. What are your final thoughts? Well, I've probably given the game away by now, but uh, this is what I'll say. It's in a world where Star Wars is as popular as it is, there's no reason Krull should be in the Oubliette. Right. <laughs> so, yes, I think it should be freed. That's a pretty good reason. Right. What about you, Dan? Uh, You're not so attached to this from childhood. Yeah, uh, not so attached. I've found this movie mostly boring. Uh, and a <laughs> A little bit derivative, and at so many scenes, I just thought half, half of the duration. Mm. I don't need to see as much mountain climbing. I don't need to see <laughs> a, a man slowly traverse a spider's web. There's even one scene with Anir where he he watches the slayers ride by, and it goes on for thirty seconds <laughs> or something, and he's just standing there come on like why do we need to see this there were a few standout scenes for me and I, I feel like all the ingredients of the film do make up a good film but they just weren't sort of assembled in the right way mm. and yeah I don't think this film should be released I think it should be buried in quicksand oh my tie break tie break <laughs> Well, I don't think audiences will be terribly surprised to hear that I'm very, very fond of this movie <laughs> because it's a yeah, it's another childhood favorite of mine. I do think watching it as an adult, it doesn't hold up well in particular. Yes, the pace is not good. And yes, although they've tried to deepen the characters, their relationships are simplistic to the extreme, mm. to the point where two characters who've just met are suddenly their love is so powerful it can defeat a horde of invading aliens, mm -hmm. but with flamethrowing, no less. <laughs> but still, I think the film's production value, the way that it's designed, the way it looks, the score particularly by James Horner is mm. incredible. Right, yes. The special effects are good for their time, and there is enough fun writing in there and funny scenes and witty dialogue and great performances from its ensemble cast that I still think it's enjoyable. So... I would vote for it to be released and to stampede across a thousand leagues on the backs of fire players. <laughs> oh, wow. I am outvoted. <laughs> <laughs> Off you go, Kral. So, Serge, it's been amazing having you here to revisit something that's a little bit sillier than the things that we've talked about on previous episodes. I hope yeah. you enjoyed it. Yeah, I enjoyed it very much. So far, the last two times I'd picked a hard-boiled political science fiction thriller and then a horror film. So this was a nice little mm. change of pace. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm glad that we've touched on all three of our genres yeah. so far. So for people who've enjoyed hearing your thoughts, uh, where can they follow you and what can they look forward to next? You can find me on YouTube. I'm Cold Crash Pictures. Twitter is Cold Crash Picks. As for what's coming up next, I'm currently in production on something that I have been gearing up for throughout all of quarantine, which is a video about musicals. Oh, ah, Conrad's favorite. <laughs> <laughs> 
I have self-identified in the past as somebody who cannot get into musicals as a genre. Plenty that I like individually, but just as a, as a specific form that it never did much for me. And this next video is going to be, I've watched like 30 musicals in quarantine. Oh, wow. What I hope is a very earnest and honest attempt to reevaluate that opinion. Mm. Uh, so that should be coming in a couple weeks. Wow. I'm looking forward to that in that case, because I'm in the same boat as you. Mm. I cannot cope with just that moment when people stop doing dialogue and start speaking in a rhythmic way. Ah. And then <laughs> a little bit of a melody creeps in. <laughs> and it switches to ADR. Yes, very much so. And sometimes a completely different voice to mm. no I can't cope with it for some reason that transition completely throws me I'm not able to mm. make the leap into the musical but maybe you will convince me we'll see we'll <laughs> see maybe you can convince yourself yeah. <laughs> so Conrad what's happening next episode next episode we'll be doing a patron's pick so it's time to wheel out that oubliette roulette oubliette roulette ah as prepared earlier, gonna give it a whirl. <laughs> Squeaky as usual. <laughs> and what is it, Conrad? It's the fourth kind. <laughs> oh, okay. I have seen this movie. Yes, I vaguely remember you speaking about it and not fondly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh, I guess I'll, I'll keep that for the episode, but... Yes. You never know if you revisit it. Maybe you will see it with fresh eyes. Mm, doubt it. I've never <laughs> seen it. <laughs> I have never seen it, so I'm really looking forward to this. This was suggested by our patron, Isaac. So thanks for that, Isaac. Yeah. I think we're in for a yeah, treat sure. here. <laughs> <laughs> And if you want to keep up with our antics, then you can follow us on all social media channels where we are Movie Oubliette. That's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yes, and our email address is movie.oubliette at gmail.com. We love all of your emails. We do, yes. And we love you even more if you patronise us. So head on over to Patreon, where for as little as a dollar, you can nominate movies for us to cover, as Isaac did. And for $5, you get access to all our exclusive bonus extra material, like our full 45-minute interview with Robert Picardo, which was Great. Yes, the one that I missed out on. <laughs> he did, yeah. Yeah, the time that he picked was not one where you would be conscious, unfortunately. Mm. Time zones. Time zones are always fun. Thanks again, Serge, for joining us on this epic quest. Thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me pick it. <laughs> Thank you. We've loved it. Until next time. Bye, everyone. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs> I am Ergo the Magnificent, short in stature, tall in power, narrow of purpose and wide of vision, and I do not travel with peasants and beggars. Goodbye.